thank you all for that, and uh, I would like to especially thank uh, Professor Bru now Professor Bruno. I, I know him as Joe, but uh, <laughs> uh, he's, do, he's earned this title of Professor Bruno now. Um, I'd like to thank him for that generous introduction. Uh, also, I'd like to thank him more generously for his hospitality and especially for his taking me on a tour, a grand tour of the campus this afternoon. Um, it's really a lovely campus, I have to say, and having taught for many years at this college that uh, Professor Bruno mentioned, Carleton College, it's a small liberal arts college in Minnesota, it reminded me of the liberal arts college experience, which I realize how much I miss now that I'm at Notre Dame, which is far from a small liberal arts college, as you might guess. Um, so that's, uh, uh, that's that, and I'd like to talk today about thinking about Lincoln, but let me give you a kind of sneak preview of the main points that I want to make uh, this afternoon. So first, I want to present Lincoln's theory of the nature of democratic statesmanship, which I hope will be your theory too when you have heard his reasons for the kind of theory that he put forward. And I say that even though I have heard since I arrived here that there are some people who don't necessarily like Lincoln that much. But I hope you're going to be persuaded uh, about statesmanship in Lincoln's eyes uh, by the time I'm done this afternoon. Secondly, I want to present some reflections on the relationship between principle and pragmatics in political action. And then third, I'd like to lay out for you Lincoln's reasoning in favor of the proposition that he quoted from the Declaration of Independence, that proposition being that all men are created equal, and to challenge you all to think about whether that argument is valid or not. Um, see whether he had a good case for his commitment, as he restated it in the Gettysburg Address, to that particular proposition. So, I have chosen my title, which I think must have been striking to you, thinking about Lincoln, uh, not only for its poetic qualities, although I think they're <laughs> uh, but because it seems to me that our 20th century uh, political uh, situation reminds us of the need to think more about contemporary, uh, more about statesmanship and the kind of character needed in political leaders than my discipline anyway, political science, usually encourages us to do. Um, in this context, Lincoln especially comes to mind because as of last President's Day, he was once again named by the experts in the presidency as the greatest president in American history. Um, uh, and, but, I should say, really, surprisingly, I think, although maybe not so surprising here, um, surprisingly, for a person who has such a high ranking in the opinion of you know, experts in the field, he has nonetheless been subject to remarkable criticism over the course of his career, both in his own time, which I'm not really going to talk about, but subsequently, especially in the 20th century. In fact, that's where I'd like to begin to say a little bit about the criticisms that have been raised against about Lincoln and against Lincoln in the 20th century. Um, in, the in the 20th century, there have actually been two major waves of criticism of Lincoln that correspond roughly to the two halves of the 20th century. So the first of these waves of criticism um, was sponsored by some of the great historians of the Civil War um, who came to reconsider Lincoln's statecraft, his statesmanship, especially as practiced in the pre-Civil War period, which is really what I'm going to focus on today. Their criticism of Lincoln went something like this, and this is a kind of uh, conglomerate version of what they said. They thought that Lincoln took an overly radical and moralistic position in the pre-war period, and together with the abolitionists and some of the Republican Party allies, they thought he transformed a conflict that could have been compromised and settled in a peaceful way and made it into something that was not compromisable and not settleable in a peaceful way. The Civil War, according to these historians, was not in itself inevitable, but Lincoln and those, uh, those allies of his made it so by their intransigence. Now, Lincoln famously had said, maybe you read this somewhere in history courses, house divided against itself cannot stand. 
I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. Now, these historians that I'm talking about believe that Lincoln, by pronouncing and acting on the principles of this House Divided speech, created the situation and the climate of opinion within which the South could do nothing but see his election as a declaration of war against them and their institutions, and thus give them no choice but to leave the Union. At the same time, and in the same speech, Lincoln insisted that he did not expect the Union to be dissolved. He did not expect the House to fall, but he did expect that it would cease to be divided. Now, what Lincoln stated here is a mere prediction became for him an imperative of policy, as these historians see it. And he was resolved not to allow the dissolution of the Union. So this now unstoppable force of Lincoln-inspired Southern fear against him and his party met the immovable object of Lincolnian resolve to maintain the Union. And once the issue was defined that way, the result was as inevitable as the result of a Greek tragedy. This line of argument about the Civil War and about Lincoln became powerful, as I suggested, during the first half of the 20th century. And it was associated in the minds of those who put it forward and in the general climate of opinion at that time with a national reassessment of the end results of the Civil War itself. In the South, the segregation system had replaced slavery. In the North, Northern opinion had lost all zeal that it had for any sort of civil rights agenda, or for remaking Southern society, or for attending to sexually divisive issues. Because the North was engaged at that time in a huge amount of the country in general, a huge amount of economic growth, and these kind of issues from the past seemed to be a distraction from that project of what we might call nation building. Um, so reading backwards from the national accommodation to the peculiar racial practices and patterns in the South, Americans in general began to wonder whether this Civil War had been worth it. At which, remember, Civil War until World War I was the most destructive war in human history. I mean, it was a pretty amazing war. So many historians, breathing in the spirit of their own age, redefined the war as preventable, with Lincoln and the abolitionists as the chief villains in snatching war from the jaws of peace. Now, historians varied a good deal in the motivations that they attributed to Lincoln. Um, some of them thought that it was just an instance of poor judgment on his part. That is, for example, that he did not understand how horrendous this war would be. To give an example of, of, uh, that might support that view, when the fighting started after Fort Sumter, Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to serve a three-month term, uh, term of service in the army. That is, he was clearly thinking of a relatively small and relatively quick war. To put those numbers in some perspective, you might recall, you might come to know for the first time, um, that the Civil War left nearly 620,000 dead on both sides bef uh, before it was over, and it was over four years later. So this was not a small and quick war by any means. Others see the entire episode as reflecting even more negatively on Lincoln. There's a very famous article written by a very well-known historian. I won't bore you with his name. But the article is called uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Self-Made Myth, which gives you some idea of what, uh, what, what this fellow's approach to Lincoln was. Uh, this essay attributed all of Lincoln's actions to nothing so much as his soaring personal ambition that Lincoln, according to this argument, was willing to risk all to risk the future of his country and the lives of his countrymen so that he might hold high office. That's one position. Now, ironically, the charges raised against Lincoln in the second half of the 20th century were pretty much the very reverse 
of those raised against him in the first half of the 20th century. So in this case, it was not his intransigence, but his half-heartedness. It was not the, uh, it, it was rather the narrowness of his motives, of his actions and views, of his deep conservatism in everything that he did and thought that were the new targets of the new critics. This line of thought, as you might guess, emerged after the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. Um, Lincoln, these critics insist, may have signed the document that freed the slaves, but he didn't like black people. He did not want to free slaves. He favored the interests of whites only and did not see America as a place for whites and blacks to live together. In the final analysis, these charges against Lincoln amounted to the dread trilogy of racism, conservatism, he used to speak regularly of revering the work of the fathers, what could be more conservative than that, um, and pro-capitalism, because he spoke frequently of the virtues of free markets and free labor. So these two sets of charges against Lincoln are together very serious, although not quite consistent with each other. On the one hand, Lincoln is held to be drastically deficient in statecraft, uh, deficient politically, we might say. In the other case, he's held to be deficient morally, that is, uh, in his uh, half-heartedness towards the slavery question. So what I'd like to do this afternoon is to think with you a bit, partly to defend and partly merely to think about what Lincoln was doing in um, in, this, uh, in his actions that came under criticism from these scholars, both, sorry, both kinds of scholars. So let me deal with the criticisms against him in terms of the following question, or fo to focus the question a bit. Was Lincoln right, or was Stephen A. Douglas right in the debates that they had in 1857, um, sorry, 1858? <coughs> Which one of them was right in those great debates? Now, I, uh, just in case you've forgotten what the Lincoln-Douglas debates were about, I'll tell you. These debates concerned a very specific question. It was a very simple question. What should national policy be, what should congressional policy be, with respect to the question of slavery in the territories of the United States? That is to say, territories that the United States owned and were being settled, but were not yet states. There's some arrangement that has to be made for those territories before they become states. Okay. So this was a campaign, I should say, for those of you who ever read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, I think you may agree with me, in which the candidates treated this, the, the uh, electorate, half-educated electorate, very few of them, a few of them he had much of an education, a half-educated electorate, who turned out to listen to speeches that would go on, the whole event, the, the debate would go on for three or four, sometimes five hours. They would sit out there in the heat, no public address system, strained to hear what the speakers were saying. Um, but the speakers treated these people as intelligent, informed, or at least capable of being informed, and capable of judging for themselves about the most important issues that they faced as citizens. I'm not going to pause to make the obvious comparison to today. I'll just leave that. <laughs> now, in those debates, each of our two, the two, of the two debaters stood for one very clear uh, position. Stephen Douglas stood for the policy of territorial self-determination, or what he called popular sovereignty. Um, Lincoln stood on the other side for prohibiting slavery in the territories at least in those territories that were north of the old Missouri Compromise Line. I don't know if you know, they had drawn a line across the country and said there should be no slavery north of this line. They didn't say anything about <coughs> south of the line, but it was sort of understood that if slavery went in there, that would be acceptable. So Douglas's policy of popular sovereignty was, I, I want to make the case, a really brilliant solution to an intractable political problem uh, that the country faced. The policy itself was rather simple and easy to explain. Um, his policy was this. 
Instead of having Congress decide the question whether slavery would or would not be allowed into any of these territories, the decision should rest with the people of those territories themselves. It had been the approach since the um, Northwest Ordinance of 1787 to have Congress settle this issue. But Douglas said, why, why do it that way? Let's have the people of the territories do it themselves. Now this issue was particularly important, not merely for the territories that were in question, but for all of national politics, because if you think a minute about the way the representation in the Senate works, and the way in which representation in the Senate in turn affects the Electoral College, you can see that the relative number of free states and the relative number of slave states becomes an important national issue uh, all, uh, uh, all the time. So, um, uh, this situation of the national implications, the strong national implications of the question of how many slaves or how many free states there are, uh, was became a central matter of concern to all sections of the country. Uh, and political passions were therefore brought to bear, high political passions, were brought to bear on Congress as they faced this issue recurrently over the course of American expansion in the 19th century. And so Congress got caught up in this sectional conflict, and it was a very explosive, a very explosive conflict. Um, so Douglas's solution was elegant. It was an elegant solution to this, to this problem. So he, he, his main argument went something like this. The principle of America is self-government. That's what we do in America. We have self-government. So let's let the people of each territory govern themselves. In a statement that sounds like it could come out of our time, he said, why should Washington dictate a solution? But the people will do it. Um, therefore, uh, uh, he said, let the people of each territory decide for themselves whether they'll have slavery or not. So he thought he had found a way to settle a conflict what appeared, which appeared to be union-threatening. That's a conflict which threatened to break up the union. Um, so the center of conflict would no longer be Washington, but would be diffused out to the territories and presumably made less intense and less divisive for the country as a whole. So this was, I would say, a masterful effort to deflect and diffuse and disarm this conflict. It was an effort to avoid what was becoming also the most contentious element of this conflict. And this is often overlooked in thinking about uh, the slavery conflict itself. Uh, so for Congress to make a pronouncement on this subject amounted to a national endorsement of the principles and institutions of one or another the sections of the major sections of the nation. Since Congress had forbidden slavery uh, in the South, the Southerners felt that this, was, that this meant the rejection by the nation as a whole of their principles and their values and their way of life. And they felt insulted by this. And so they wanted some kind of redress. They wanted recognition of the value and, and worth of the, their way of life and of their institutions. So Douglas's popular sovereignty policy gave the South at least part of what it wanted it, when adopted. That is to say, it didn't validate slavery per se, but it stopped um, um, condemning it. It stopped condemning the Southern practice by, by, not in, uh, by no longer um, forbidding the entry of slavery into the territories and therefore no longer putting a stamp of disapproval on the institution of slavery. Um, so, so Douglas's, uh, under Douglas's popular sovereignty policy, the federal government is to remain strictly neutral between northern principles of freedom and the southern principles of slavery. Um, and as Douglas frequently said when he was out electioneering, he didn't care whether slavery was voted up or down. He just cared that it be voted on. That was it. That was all he cared about. Um, and it turns out, despite saying that, 
Douglass was himself not so neutral about the spread of slavery as he sometimes sounded, because he believed that slavery would take root or not take root, not because of laws prohibiting it or allowing it, but rather because of climate, mostly, the nature of the territory. Um, so some kinds of territory, some kind of land, is suited to certain kinds of agriculture, which were in turn suited to slavery. Other kinds of land were not suited to that kind of agriculture, and therefore not suited to slavery. So Douglas believed that this issue would be settled not really by political laws, but rather by, you might say, natural laws, that is the laws of climate and terrain. Um, and so Douglas's thought partly was, um, why fight about it politically when the political solution isn't going to solve, isn't going to settle the question? In any case, let nature settle it, and we can try to avoid the problem. So you see, the date Douglas's position was really a statesmanly position. It aimed to promote political peace and harmony, and to avoid both what we might call the scylla of uh, secession and the charybdis of civil war. That was his. That was his goal. And so once we look at Douglas's policy in this open-minded way, I think we see that um, uh, these historians who come to condemn Lincoln for intransigently framing the issue in such a way as to prevent Douglas's uh, apparently humane and harmonious policy from succeeding, uh, that they are right to blame, they have reason, good reason to blame Lincoln for doing that. So. Um, Thinking about Lincoln turning out on Lincoln's side of this, we have to face the challenge, Lincoln had to face, we have to face seriously, the challenge that Douglass's policy posed for him and for our judgment of what Lincoln is doing. I must say at the beginning of turning to Lincoln that Lincoln did everything in his power to prevent the Douglass policy from becoming accepted. He had mostly, uh, after 1850, he had mostly dropped out of politics, actually. Um, he had served one term in Congress, which had been a very mixed, the best of mixed success for him. He had turned his attention more seriously to his legal practice, uh, uh, which his political activity always got in the way of. Um, and he seemed resolved, for the most part, to make his life outside of politics. Um, which I think in a way pleased his wife because they were always short of money. His plans changed in 1854 when a law that Douglas had a big hand in passing through Congress was passed, a law called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which was a law to organize the territory, roughly Kansas, Nebraska, but included actually more than just Kansas and Nebraska, to organize those territories out there, uh, this law adopted Douglas's popular sovereignty policy as the official uh, congressional policy with regard to slavery in the territories. Lincoln's uh, change of direction at, at when this law was passed was actually quite remarkable. He, he returned to politics, and he only one object in this return to politics, and that was to show the perniciousness of Douglas's uh, policy of popular sovereignty and to try to get the Missouri Compromise line restored. And one of the things I should mention is that the Kansas-Nebraska Act very explicitly repealed the Missouri Compromise line because this territory that they were organizing, most of it had been north of the Missouri Compromise line. And therefore, it's an area where slavery had been prohibited. Now, Lincoln insisted that the question of substantive principle, it is the question of the inherent right or wrong of slavery, must be the question that uh, was addressed that could not be pushed aside in favor of Douglas's procedural solution. Douglas just said, let's set up a process and not make a judgment about slavery being right or wrong. Let's be neutral about it. Douglas said, no, we, uh, Lincoln said, no, we must face the substantive question. Uh, it's interesting that what Lincoln pushed is so hard because it's not clear it's not clear that by pushing the question of the rightness or wrongness of slavery, Lincoln is going to make a big difference in the disposition of the slavery question because it's really a fact that he was not going to change the minds of the Southerners. They were quite intransigently committed to 
slavery by this time. Um, and he, moreover, was very far from being an abolitionist himself. And this is something we need to remember about Lincoln as part of the basis for the later post-civil rights movement, criticisms of Lincoln. He conceded that despite the moral wrong of slavery, only the states where it existed had any power to do anything about it. So he wasn't going to abolish slavery in anywhere. Only the states, only the states could do that, he thought. And he knew that these slave states were not going to abolish slavery anytime soon or at any time. Um, so it's not at all clear that any good would arise from Lincoln's effort to pursue the policy against Douglas that he was uh, pursuing. So it could be said that what all Lincoln could achieve was to return us to the state of intense conflict that prevailed prior to Douglas's efforts to defame that conflict. So in 1854, Lincoln left what was becoming a somewhat lucrative law practice, and he took it upon himself to speak out against the leading politician in Illinois, which was Douglas, who was also one of the leading politicians in the entire nation. Um, why did he do this? He did it, he said, because this is how he described it. I hate this declared indifference to the spread of slavery. Hatred, pretty strong sentiment for a man, from a man who in the uh, second inaugural address after a war that led hatred to hatred out every, you know, all around the country, who had said, who had asked for um, malice toward none and charity toward all. But here, Lincoln expressed hatred for the principle that Douglas was defending. Lincoln hated this Douglas policy of indifference to slavery expansion and came out of semi-retirement to voice that hatred and to make others feel it also. And here's how he explained himself. I hate it, he said in 1854. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world. And especially I hate it because this forces so many good men amongst ourselves into an open war with the very fundamental principles of civil liberty, criticizing the Declaration of Independence and insisting that there is no right principle of action but self-interest. So Lincoln hates Douglass's principle of popular sovereignty for its effect on three different groups of people. First, for its effects on the slaves themselves, who are the victims of the monstrous injustice of slavery. Second, for its effects on those foreigners who are already disposed against America and against American republicanism, and who are hardened by the existence of slavery in the midst of freedom, because this proves to them the hypocrisy of the Americans. Um, Samuel Johnson, the man who wrote one of the early dictionaries in English, fellow living at the time of the American Revolution, Samuel Johnson said, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? That's the kind of view that um, Lincoln was concerned about. And then third and finally, Lincoln hates the effects on, as he put them, many good men amongst ourselves, because it leads them into opposition to the Declaration of Independence and the principles of political right, is the way he put it. Perhaps surprisingly, Lincoln identified this last group as the group, as, as his most special ground for hating this principle of indifference or neutrality on the question of slavery. Now, Lincoln was definitely onto something when he saw the Douglas policy as turn, or the whole slavery issue, as turning some people against the Declaration of Independence. So to mention one example, Senator John Pettit of Indiana, my home state at the moment, in 1854, on the floor of the Senate, stood up to say that the Declaration of Independence was a self-evident lie. And there were, that's just one example, I mention it for reasons of India. Um, from Lincoln's point of view, perhaps the most discouraging sign of the war slavery provoked against the Declaration of Independence was the decision by the US Supreme Court in the infamous Dred Scott case. There, the Chief Justice of the United States, that is the highest judicial officer in the United States, 
said that the Declaration of Independence could not possibly have meant to apply to members of the African race, as he put it, who he concluded had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Had no rights the white man was bound to respect. This is the fulfillment, to a T, of what Lincoln uh, worried about in 1854, that good men would reject the very principles of political right and instead insist that there is no principle of political action but self-interest. Now, so all three of Lincoln's uh, uh, reasons for hating slavery, neutrality about slavery, are really variants of his first point, uh, uh, which is to say that Douglas's policy uh, ignores the monstrous injustice of slavery. And it's this injustice that robs America of the example that it should hold in the rest of the world that is something to aspire to and imitate. Um, it's this um, uh, it's this it's this monstrous injustice that in turn threatens to rob America of its own commitment to its own best principles. This is Lincoln's worry. And Lincoln's point here is a bit more subtle than it might seem. Let me try to draw out the subtle point. It is not slavery itself that does these bad things, so much as the Douglas approach to slavery. That is to say, the declaration of official indifference, official indifference to the rightness or wrongness of slavery. So Lincoln thought slavery a monstrous injustice, but he thought it would have to be lived with, for the time being at least, and that it could be lived with. So long as the prohibition on the spread of slavery existed in the law, so long as that prohibition existed to serve two really important purposes. First, to affirm in the law the inherent wrong of slavery by not being neutral about it. And second, to give the public mind reason to believe that slavery was, in a phrase he liked to use, in course of ultimate extinction. What that course was, he never said. How ultimate that extinction would be, by Lincoln's policy, maybe we'd still have it. If, uh, uh, but nonetheless, in course of ultimate extinction, those are the things. In that second wave of criticism of Lincoln after the Civil Rights Movement, um, Lincoln was blamed for being so tolerant of slavery as this. He was blamed for opposing intransigently in immediately, not the evil itself, but a peripheral matter of the spread of the evil. Um, all the while affirming his willingness to tolerate the evil where it existed. So Lincoln apparently hated Douglas's stated indifference to slavery even more than he hated the evil of slavery. And that may be a little hard to understand why he might be there. Um, I think we can understand his um, uh, reasons for uh, opposing Douglas's efforts to <coughs> impose his statesmanly settlement on the country. Um, uh, if we listen carefully to what Lincoln says about the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. And his central argument against uh, slavery is a very simple syllogism. I'm going to present sort of versions of it because he stated it differently in different so let's take the first premise, principle. All human beings are equal, or he also said possess equal rights, or possess rights to themselves, Stephen said. So that's premise one. Second premise, the blacks are human. Conclusion, therefore slavery of the blacks or any human being is unjust because it is a denial of rights, a denial of the right of self-ownership, however you want to put it. As you can see, Lincoln was no relativist. He did not believe that this was merely his value judgment that slavery is wrong, but slavery is wrong. That was his view. I take it that's a, a view that perhaps finds resonance, not necessarily of slavery, but this anti-relativism. I take it finds some resonance here at Christendom College, I assume. Um, Lincoln knew, though, that not everyone accepted his first premise, that is the premise that all human beings are this had become very controversial in his time, and it's often controversial now. So what is his argument in favor of his first premise? That's what we need to establish. 
Actually, he made three chief arguments in favor of that first premise about human equality. The first argument, and probably his most common argument, the one he most often voiced, was an argument from feeling. Okay, keep that in mind, feeling, from feeling. And um, he told his audience in 1854, your sense of justice and your sense of human sympathy continually tell you that the poor Negro has some natural right to himself. Later, he says, repeal the Missouri Compromise. Repeal all compromises. Repeal the Declaration of Independence. Repeal all past history. You still cannot repeal human nature. It still will be the abundance of man's heart that slavery extension is wrong. It is certain, Lincoln asserted, that the great mass of mankind considers slavery a great moral wrong. And their feeling against it is not evanescent, but eternal. It lies at the very foundation of their sense of justice. Nature expressed in the universal or near universal promptings of the human heart teaches that human beings are equal and slavery a terrible wrong. But it turns out nature is only one of his arguments. Another argument uh, goes like this. My ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal and that there can be no moral right in connection with one man's making a slave of another. Now, by his ancient faith, I'm guessing all of you can uh, guess that he means the Declaration of Independence. You know, he says it straight out. We hope these truths to be self-evident, etc. Um, now, that statement in the Declaration of Independence is a statement not universally known and delivered by the human heart in the natural feelings, but it's rather a proposition put forward in a particularly American document in a particularly American context. It is Lincoln's, or our, as Americans, our faith, not the faith of mankind in general. It is <clears throat> where, where Lincoln's first argument appeals to universal nature. His second argument appeals to history, to a particular deliverance of our history. Now, these two arguments are perhaps not contradictory, but they're really quite different from each other, as I think you could see. And to these two arguments, Lincoln adds a third argument. Um, and this one is very different from the other two. Where the others are, in one form or another, non-rational arguments, appeals to feeling on one hand or faith on the other, um, this one is a rational argument. And here's his rational argument. If A can prove, however conclusively, that he may have right enslave B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may, may enslave A? That's, Link, that's Lincoln's query. So he goes on. You say A is white and B is black. Ah, it is color then. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with a lighter skin than your own. Oh, you don't mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superior of the blacks and therefore have a right to enslave them. Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. Now, this is, in a way, a very simple argument. I think you have to concede that. Yet, I'm at least going to claim this is also a very powerful argument. It's an argument, just to give it a little uh, academic respectability, that is known in some circles, philosophy circles, as a dialectically necessary argument. It depends upon a claim that I, each and every I, raises for myself, a claim I raise for myself. I know in my bones my claim to freedom, that I am free and that I want to be free be free. I cannot help but see this, and I cannot help but assert this claim for myself. And Lincoln's reasoning makes me see 
that I cannot go on to affirm slavery for another without endangering in principle my own freedom. To affirm slavery for another is to affirm slavery for oneself. As Lincoln said in another place, even more briefly, although volume upon volume is written to prove slavery a very good thing, we never hear of the man who wishes to take the good of it by being a slave himself. Or as he put it in another place, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. Now, as you may have noticed, this argument also depends upon a certain kind of feeling, just as the first argument did. But there's a difference. The first argument depended upon a revulsion in all of us against slavery for others. Yes? I, have a, I know in my heart that that person being a slave is wrong and bad. This argument, this so-called rational argument, is different because in this case, the feeling is my own feeling about me being a slave, yes? And Lincoln knew, and I think all of us will admit in our honester moments, in our most honest moments, that um, this second argument has a bit more certainty to it than the first argument. That is, we're more certain to feel that the slavery is a bad thing for us than we are to necessarily feel it's a bad thing for somebody else. So affirming the universal feeling um, uh, uh, is problematic, it turns out. Lincoln had conceded, for example, that volume upon volume had been written to justify the slavery of others. But no one willingly chooses the state for himself. So in a word, I would maintain, Lincoln's rational, the third argument, is better as an argument. As a matter of logic, as a matter of clear thinking, Lincoln proves that one can accept slavery for any person only on pain of self-contradiction. But Lincoln knew that human beings do not consider the pain of self-contradiction to be the worst pain that they might suffer. He once sat down to consider the case of the Reverend Dr. Ross of Alabama, who wrote a book on this very topic. Dr. Ross was a slaveholder, a conscientious man of God, he was a reverend, um, who came to ask himself the question whether his slave should be a slave. And as Lincoln started to spin this out, he said, well, Dr. Ross looks in the Bible, but he finds no clear, unambiguous answer to this question in the Bible. Uh, and he certainly, Lincoln says, never bothers to ask his slaves their opinion of the question. So, now this is a quotation from Lincoln. So at last, it comes to this, that Dr. Ross is to decide this question, and while he considers it, he sits in the shade with gloves on his hands and subsists on the bread his slaves are earning in the burning sun. If he decides that God wills these slaves free, he thereby has to walk out of the shade, throw off his gloves, and delve for his own bread. Will Dr. Ross be actuated by that perfect impartiality which has ever been considered most favorable to correct decision? The Reverend Ross, it seems, is more willing to suffer the pain of self-contradiction than the pain of labor in the hot sun. Only if human beings generally found the pain of self-contradiction less tolerable than many other pains would rational argument be as conclusive in practice as it is in theory. What makes a proposition true, that is the logic, the rationality of it, and what makes a proposition effective as a maximum of action are two different things, quite different from each other. This is the single most important truth about politics. This disparity between what's true rational and what's effective in action sets the task for statesmanship to make the true and the good and the right also be effectual. That's the case. Or to bring these elements as close together as is possible. This is both what holds politics and morality together and what separates them at the same time. Because the true and the right and the effectual are not the same. Um, 
This is what separates the task of the moral philosopher or the historical critic or any of these people who know better than the people they're talking about um, uh, uh, from the political actor of the highest kind. So no political actor in American history, I believe, understood this truth more fully and acted upon it more uh, thoughtfully and creatively than Lincoln did. So to, to repeat, Lincoln made three arguments against slavery, an argument from direct feeling, an argument from our faith, and an argument from reason. The argument from reason is true, but as such, ineffective. The argument from feeling is effective so far as it is true. That is, so far as people have that feeling, so far as people are genuinely repulsed to see other people's slaves, that can be an effective goal to action. That can be true. But the feeling against the slavery of others is fragile. It's not universal. Lincoln way overstated the case when he said it was universal. Um, so Lincoln's point is that um, reason ascertains truth and feeling prompts action. But this feeling against slavery is, um, is fragile and, and Lincoln knew perfectly well that many held slaves and had no revulsion against them at all. So reasoning points to the truth of the anti-slavery position, but reasoning is ineffective without the support of feeling. And feeling, he indicates, is unreliable. It's too variable. It's too uncertain in itself. It needs to be formed, focused, and channeled. And so it's in this context that Lincoln's other argument against slavery comes into its own. That is to say, the argument from our ancient faith, that is from the American consensus, or what had been a consensus, on the Declaration of Independence. The fragility of both reason and feeling points to the need to cultivate fundamental moral and political truth in the mode of faith. Like the ancient faith of God's people, this is our faith, we, we Americans, our inheritance from our fathers. Lincoln preaches the universal and rational truth of freedom as the particularistic and non-rational inheritance of this people and its history. Lincoln attempts to attach the reverence reserved for the most sacred and venerable things to the fundamental truths of political life. The task for Lincoln's statesmanship is to make the Declaration of Independence an object of an almost religious attachment. So he took the truths of John Locke, who perhaps you've studied here, you studied John Locke, took the truths of John Locke or Thomas Jefferson, perhaps you've studied him here. In Virginia, you must study Thomas Jefferson. Um, Two men of the Enlightenment, Locke and Jefferson, who thought that rational argument plus self-interest would be enough to form a decent society. And he, Lincoln infused their truths with a spirit of religion and poetry. Now it should be clear why Lincoln saw that he had to counter the apparently statesmanly accommodation that Douglas had tried to work out. Douglas might perhaps, although it turned out he didn't, gain some temporary political a quieting of the conflict with his policy, but in the longer run, his policy would endanger the conditions for future political health because it would um, further wean the nation away from its commitment to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, our commitment to that, our ancient faith. Um, worse than the existence of slavery, in other words, is the spreading of the view that slavery is a matter of indifference or neutrality, that the nation can and should be neutral on a topic like that. So long as the moral evil of slavery is reaffirmed, so long as the ancient faith is kept alive, then, Lincoln claimed, one could rest secure in the belief that the evil would be abolished from the land in the course of time. He knew that his intransigence carried risks, that's equally but he knew, believed anyway, that the alternative was not worse. The alternative is, in his mind was that America would become a holy slave country. He thought that was a very bad outcome. Um, 
He knew also that the disparity between what is true and what is effective means that at any, at any moment, the person who understands the relationship between morality and politics properly must always settle for less than morality demands. But he must also keep open the moral principle, must keep it alive, so that another statesman, another day, might aim at another and a more far-reaching conjunction between the moral truth and the politically efficacious feeling. The task is different in detail from time to time. Lincoln is one thing, our time is another thing. But in form, it is just the same, this task of statesmanship. So I can do no better than to close out my speech from quoting uh, a passage from Lincoln's uh, speech, one could almost say tirade, against the Dred Scott decision. And if you don't know about the Dred Scott, what it actually was, we can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, here's what Lincoln said in that in the speech against that decision. The framers of the Declaration of Independence defined with tolerable distinctness in what respects they did consider all men created equal, equal in certain inalienable rights. This they said, and this they meant. They did not mean to assert the obvious untruth that all men were then enjoying the equality, nor yet that they were, they, the founders, were about to confer it immediately upon them. In fact, they had no power to confer such a boon. They meant simply to declare the right so that enforcement of it might follow as fast as circumstances should permit. They meant to set up a standard maxim for free society, which could be familiar to all and revered by all, constantly looked up to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere. For Lincoln, the statesman, this is what makes America great.